Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The following episode is part two of a reading of Fight Back's perspectives for 2021. This document was discussed, amended, and passed by the comrades of Fight Back, La Riposte Socialiste, at the National Congress. It's an important analysis of the class struggle in Canada and the way forward to socialism. We hope everyone will listen to and discuss its contents with us. This episode is presented by Comrade Odin Mulder. The point of Marxists analyzing economics is not to act like we have a crystal ball or to speculate on the increasingly irrational gyrations of the stock market. We don't recommend that workers use the Robinhood trading app to achieve their personal emancipation. The point of analyzing economics is to understand the effect on the consciousness of the classes and the ability of the system to grant reforms. Lenin and Trotsky both explained in the early 1920s that if it is not overthrown, the capitalist system will always find a new equilibrium. But this equilibrium will in itself prepare the conditions for future and bigger catastrophes. Revolutionaries should not have a mechanical view of the relationship between economic conditions and class struggle. The simplistic view that collapse equals revolution can lead to demoralization if a collapse does not immediately lead to revolution, or if there are short intervals of upswing in a larger period of decline. As we previously stated, there is no precedent for the current crisis, and all perspectives are conditional. Political and subjective factors, including the role played by particular individuals, can often be decisive and overrule economic and objective factors. What we can say is that we do not know how the capitalists can get out of the current crisis, and neither do they. The general economic trend downwards means that reforms will be rare and attacks on the workers frequent. Even when the workers face political setbacks due to poor leadership, the bosses will not be able to consolidate their position with economic advances. A prolonged period of revolution, counter-revolution, wars, and instability is ahead of us. Indeed, we are already in this period. The main barrier to ending this impasse is the leadership of the workers' organizations. The union bureaucracy, safely working from home with pay far higher than the workers they represent, has actively resisted any talk of work refusals. There have been waves of spontaneous refusals amongst teachers, transit, construction, and postal workers, but they have overwhelmingly been independent of the union structures. Often, the bureaucracy unites with management to get workers back into an unsafe workplace while regulating the concerns to a committee that will take months to act. Due to pressure from below, 
Union leaders are belatedly coming to support demands for mass testing, increased physical distancing, sick days, and other reforms. But what is notable by its absence is any support for militant actions that could successfully achieve these reforms. The Canadian labor movement finds itself behind U.S. labor, where there have been teacher strikes against unsafe school openings and a wave of other disputes. In Britain, the teachers threatened to strike and forced the government into a humiliating climb-down. This failure to support direct action has absolutely nothing to do with a supposed low level of class consciousness amongst the workers. The workers are increasingly angry and willing to act, but this is hard to do while any mobilization is suppressed by the leadership. In the pandemic, there has been a notable increase in class consciousness amongst the working class. Union density is up for the first time in a generation. This is partially due to the fact that layoffs have been more pronounced in non-union workplaces, but there is also anecdotal evidence of union drives being more successful. The successful Toronto Aquarium Drive is one example of this trend. During this drive, management launched a textbook anti-union intimidation campaign. Usually, this results in workers being scared into voting no, but this time, it angered the workers so that more of them voted yes than signed union cards. Workers are more and more likely to want to join a union given the opportunity. This pressure from below is sure to lead to an explosion in the labor movement, but for the present time, the bureaucracy is doing everything it can to tighten the screws on the pressure cooker of the class struggle. A key feature of the epoch we live in is polarization. This phenomenon is more or less pronounced in every country. Canada has not yet reached the levels of polarization of Britain and the USA, for example, but it is on the same path. Academics, liberals, and reformists bemoan the so-called rise of the far right, but they do not see the entire picture. A more accurate characterization of polarization is not the rise of the far right, but the collapse of the middle. The crisis in society discredits the representatives of the status quo, as the status quo is clearly failing the majority of the population. This process cannot be understood by academics and liberals because it is precisely their system and their politics that are being rejected for very good material reasons. The reformists, inasmuch as they act as the left face of the liberal status quo, are also rejected. In the face of the crisis of the middle, people look to anti-establishment solutions. These can be anti-establishment ideas of the right or of the left. The right blames immigrants or refugees or some kind of other. The left blame the rich and those who actually have power. Liberals and reformists like to focus on the right side of polarization because this helps them to neutralize the left. 
The reality is that polarization is never of equal weight and frequently leans left. For example, in the USA, 54% of the entire population supported burning down the Minneapolis police precinct after the murder of George Floyd, while 45% of Republicans supported the storming of the Capitol building on January 6, 2021. These opinions are both insurrectionary from the left and the right, but the right side of anti-establishment polarization only represents 21% of the population versus 54% for the left. Similar numbers are seen with regard to participation in mass demonstrations. It is wrong to downplay the real existence of far-right individuals and organizations, but it is even more wrong to overstate their power and support in society. The fascists are not about to come to power in Canada, the USA, or anywhere else in the near future. The January 6th insurrection on Capitol Hill was more a symptom of the weakness of the far-right than its strength. The American ruling class has no interest in going down that road at this stage and is doing everything it can to crack down on Trumpism. The far right and Trump are opposed by the capitalists because they do more to radicalize the majority of the workers than to terrorize people. Workers' organizations need to organize defense against the far right but those who shout, the fascists are coming, unwittingly or wittingly, serve to promote the status quo. The result of such seemingly left anti-fascism is to downplay the power of anti-establishment ideas on the left while scaring the left to unite with the liberal status quo. Vote Biden to stop Trump's fascism, etc. Ironically, such popular front unity with liberals is the only policy that is guaranteed to assist the rise of the far right. In a situation where the liberal middle is collapsing and the majority are looking for radical alternatives, if the left aligns itself with the status quo, the only anti-establishment alternative will be the far right. In this sense, the main threat from the far right is not in their ability to terrorize the working class into submission, but to terrorize the reformist leaders of the workers' organizations into a closer alliance with the representatives of the liberal status quo. One example of this is the federal NDP successfully calling for the Proud Boys to be added to the terrorism watch list. On the one side, it is a positive symptom that the presence of the far right is being taken seriously, but it is important that they be fought in the correct way. To ask the state to police the fascists, while the police have been enabling them and their leaders have been revealed to be police informants, is the height of naivete. The terrorism watch list of the Canadian state shouldn't be expanded, it should be abolished. Now that these repressive state forces have been legitimized by representatives of the workers' movement, it makes it far easier to use them against the left, trade unions, BLM, and indigenous activists. 
But while the Proud Boys will be given all the discretion of a sympathetic state, the full weight of oppression will fall on the heads of those fighting capital. The Trump movement isn't going anywhere, because the crisis of capitalism is not ending and therefore polarization to the left and the right is here to stay. The workers' movement needs to organize independently from the liberals and the state in order to defend oppressed communities from the far right. But we also need to lay the blame for the social catastrophe that creates polarization firmly in the lap of the defenders of the liberal status quo. Defense against the far right must be combined with a socialist perspective that explains the capitalist roots of the crisis. Only in this way can we win over those looking for an answer to the impasse in society. Given the protracted nature of the crisis, this will be an ongoing debate. Either weakly oppose the right by supporting a failing middle, or resolutely fight the right while explaining the failure of the middle. The social catastrophe is guaranteed to be protracted precisely due to the bankruptcy of the leadership of the workers' organizations. This is true both in terms of electoral politics and in the trade unions. In the pandemic, the unions and the NDP have been almost totally silent and have just presented themselves as the left wing of the government. In the first days of the pandemic, the NDP was consistently one or two weeks ahead of what the Liberals were going to implement anyway. Instead of making the bosses pay, they proposed the insufficient CERB payment. What is worse, the NDP was the first to propose the corporate wage subsidy. They even bragged about this fact. The wage subsidy has been the main conduit for corporate welfare, with large corporations receiving hundreds of millions of dollars at the same time as giving similar amounts in dividends and executive bonuses, all while laying off workers. When the Liberals suffered a collapse in popularity due to the We Charity scandal, it was the NDP that propped them up for a very minor reform to maintain CERB at its old level. It is highly likely that the Liberals played the NDP by pretending to reduce the benefit only to give the NDP something to claim victory for. They also won a very minor concession to extend CRB for two weeks to those with COVID, and they called this sick pay. But subsequently, the non-sick pay, non-reform, has been a convenient excuse for right-wing provincial governments to refuse to give actual employer-paid sick pay. Not just right-wing governments, but also the provincial NDP government in BC. The NDP has been near silent about the billions being gifted to the corporations in bailouts. Instead, they propose minor tax-the-rich plans that are calculated to be so modest that they make no real difference. Even when they propose something good, like taking long-term care facilities into public ownership, they delay its implementation for a decade. 
This will be of little help to the thousands of elderly people facing significantly higher death rates in private homes right now. Sometimes, the NDP appears to have even more confidence in the Liberals than the Liberals have in themselves. They say things like, the Liberals say the right things, but you need us to keep them honest, while the Liberals attempt to engineer their own defeat to trigger an election, the NDP struggles pathetically to keep them in power. Absent is any socialist alternative to liberal corporate welfare. No talk about expropriating the ill-gotten gains of the pandemic profiteers. Without this socialist perspective, it is not surprising that the NDP has little different to say from the Liberals. The capitulation of the reformists is an inevitable consequence of their refusal to break with capitalism. Reformism cannot stand in a period where capitalism cannot afford reforms. But in a situation where capitalism cannot provide profits, the only option is between corporate bailouts and nationalization. If the reformists reject nationalization and production for need, they have no choice other than guaranteeing corporate profits out of state funds. It is therefore unsurprising that the NDP garners little enthusiasm amongst class-conscious workers and radical youth. While the party still retains its organic link to the trade unions, it is not likely to be a conduit for struggle in the short term. This lack of enthusiasm is reinforced by the actions of the party bureaucracy that does everything to suppress any organized expression of the left. Pro-Palestine candidates have been systematically blocked from running for the party. The bureaucracy also took full advantage of a minor error by left-wing MP Nikki Ashton visiting her sick grandmother, and they removed her from all caucus responsibilities. It is notable that Ashton was trying to push public ownership and opposition to airline bailouts from her shadow cabinet position. Initially, Ashton did not fight back and stayed silent in the face of this attack. Weakness only invited further aggression, and the bureaucracy proceeded to stick the knife in when the National Post began a slander campaign mobilizing false allegations of anti-Semitism. With nothing left to lose, Ashton began fighting back. This is an encouraging development which has rallied the NDP left. The April 2021 federal NDP convention was a barometer of the class struggle within the NDP. The bureaucracy was able to maintain its domination, with Singh receiving an 87% confidence vote. The apparatus used their control to stifle debate and infuriate the left. But the left is not dead. The party brass were incapable of keeping the Palestine Solidarity Resolution off the agenda, which went on to get 80% support. Socialist candidate Jessa McLean also received 33% of the vote for party president, which is probably the most accurate measure for the balance of forces within the party. 
nature abhors a vacuum and the pressure for a political expression of social discontent is building constantly typically the ndp would be such a conduit but if this outlet is blocked the energy will seek other avenues one interesting symptomatic event was the near victory of eco-socialist Dmitry Lestaris in the Green Party leadership contest. The Greens are not an environment typically friendly to socialism. The party establishment is traditionally allied with the Liberals while being hostile to the NDP and unions. Green voters are often more petite bourgeois pro-small business, and opinion polls reveal they have social sentiments to the right of both NDP and liberal voters. The general purpose of the party is to split the anti-establishment vote that may allow the NDP to win more seats. However, Despite lacking the working-class base of the NDP, the eco-socialists managed to gather 45% of the vote on the final ballot. This success did not happen because the Greens are a good conduit for the class struggle. Precisely the opposite. It happened because other, more traditional outlets of struggle were blocked. At the time, we advised Lascaris' eco-socialists to unite with socialists in the NDP, in the unions, and unaligned socialists to fight for a common socialist platform in all these venues. Unfortunately, for now it appears that he has decided to keep his activity within the Greens with the idea of building a loyal left opposition to the right-wing leadership. This seems to be a poor terrain of struggle going forward, and the green bureaucracy may soon move to purge the left using fake allegations of anti-Semitism. But regardless of where Lascaris' supporters end up, and what role they may play in future developments, the green leadership election has incredibly symptomatic importance. It shows that there is a growing desire for socialist politics that is desperately searching for an expression in whatever form. In Quebec, the Quebec Solidaire leadership fell in the trap of national unity during the beginning of the pandemic, essentially acting as unpaid ministers of the CAQ government. They offered no opposition whatsoever, as Quebec was the worst hit of all the provinces. This approach taken by the QS leadership has undoubtedly contributed to the high levels of popularity of the Legault government. Faced with anger and pressure from below, the QS leadership has changed tune and has come out more strongly against the government and has even admitted that their previous approach was perhaps mistaken. They propose what they call an anti-austerity shield, which is a series of measures including taxing the rich and the big companies to fund public services. Other measures include hiring 100,000 new public sector workers, notably in healthcare. 
While these proposals are more bold than anything else proposed in other provinces, QS implies that the capitalists should accept to pay for the crisis and that we merely need political courage to enact such measures. It is possible that by focusing on these measures, QS could become a pole of attraction among the layers of workers and youth radicalized by the economic crisis. In such a context, we would have to patiently explain how the capitalists will do everything to sabotage QS's plans and that a mighty class struggle will be necessary to make the bosses pay. Unlike the USA and Britain, Canada has not recently witnessed mass uprisings or mass left-wing movements. With one or two exceptions, the class struggle has been mostly subdued in the recent period. The $2,000 per month CERB payment also played a role in lessening the most acute impacts of the crisis. But the capitalists would be foolish in the extreme to see this as an example of ongoing stability in Canada. As we explained above, the question of who pays looms over all developments. But even before this question comes to a head, there is plenty of combustible material in society. The Black Lives Matter movement in the USA had its reflection in Canada with tens of thousands protesting in solidarity. The indigenous struggle has repeatedly blown up, with Wet'suwet'en and the Mi'kmaq fisheries dispute. We have analyzed both the struggle against racism and indigenous oppression at length in previous documents, so we will not repeat that analysis here. But it is important to point out that a reoccurring feature of these struggles against oppression is an increased class consciousness and class solidarity. One particularly inspiring example of solidarity was shown amongst mine workers in Baffinland, Nunavut. In response to the negative effects of expanding the mine, the local Inuit blockaded the airstrip in this fly-in community, leaving 700 mine workers stranded. Instead of hostility to the Inuit, the workers penned an impressive letter of support, stating, quote, we firmly believe that the company should listen to your demands and give you what you want, though even that will likely not be enough. With the horrible history that has taken place in this country, and the ways in which your voices were silenced in the process, what could be enough? Unquote. Class solidarity such as this is the way to defeat the bosses and their state, and it is increasingly on the rise. There is palpable anger rising up from below that could burst out at any fracture point. There is a growing evictions and homelessness crisis, with tent cities becoming a common feature in cities large and small. No sick pay and unpaid work in the pandemic itself could lead to an explosion. Racist police violence is a perpetual issue. Schools and universities continue to be unsafe, while students are forced to pay full tuition. There are increasing workplace closures and layoffs, 
while bosses get bailouts and bonuses. Union drives amongst highly exploited sectors also have potential. Municipal budget shortfalls could spark fights with city workers. And even if governments delay austerity, corporations may use the pandemic to degrade union contracts, such as seen in the Molson Brewery lockout. While CRB slash CERB has mitigated the struggle, the cancellation of the program could itself cause an explosion. It is impossible to predict if these or other issues will lead to an eruption, but there are so many weak links in the chain that literally anything could spark off a mass conflict. While the Trudeau liberals are trying everything to forestall a social explosion, there is often a different dynamic provincially. The most glaring example of this is in Alberta, where the United Conservatives under Jason Kenney have done absolutely everything possible to antagonize the working class and have been criminally negligent in the pandemic. A January 2021 poll revealed that only 27% of Albertans were satisfied with the government's handling of the pandemic, the worst in the country by 30 points. Instead of investing in healthcare and reducing class sizes, the Alberta government is laying off healthcare workers and attacking teachers. This has provoked calls for a general strike and even led to limited wildcat walkouts by healthcare workers. The union leaders are trying to keep a lid on things, and the right-wing Rachel Notley ANDP is trying to disassociate itself from the unions but this may not be enough to hold back the anger of the workers. Kenny and the UCP are stuck in a time warp to the old rural Alberta with undeveloped class relations and endless oil profits. His oil boss backers think they can dictate to the workers like Ralph Klein with the backing of a solid reactionary voting bloc. But that Alberta has gone the way of the dinosaurs. Marx explained that social conditions determine social consciousness, and Alberta is no longer a land of cattle and crude. Instead, Alberta has an advanced and cosmopolitan working class with a developed class consciousness. The character of the province was irrevocably altered with the victory of the NDP in 2015, and it is telling that despite the betrayals of the Notley NDP government, the party still received 33% in the 2019 election. The only thing remaining from the old Alberta is the angry determination of the people to fight. If the ruling class does not jettison Kenny and embark on a policy of concessions, then it seems like a decisive conflict is inevitable. It is possible that it is too late for concessions to calm things down, as even partial victories would increase the confidence of the workers to fight to regain what has been lost. As they say, appetite comes with eating. Those in the east of Canada who have elitist ideas about backwards redneck Albertans are about to have a big shock 
as Alberta becomes the front line of the fight against austerity. It is imperative that the forces of Marxism in Alberta grow and prepare themselves politically for this conflict. Support in the polls for provincial leaders has generally been tied to performance during the pandemic, with Kenny coming in dead last. However, the situation in Quebec seems to defy all logic. Right-wing Premier François Legault has, by any measure, completely bungled the management of the pandemic. However, he remains the most popular Premier in the country. There are a few things that can help us to explain this. First, the CAQ is a new party. For decades, the two establishment parties traded power back and forth while the workers' living conditions suffered. Both the Liberals and the PQ imposed austerity measures and attacked the unions, while the CAQ, for all their faults, have not yet decisively attacked the working class as a whole. In addition to this, the Liberals, and to a lesser extent the PQ, are still largely remembered as being tarnished with corruption scandals which people are not happy to go back to. Moreover, the arrival of the CAQ breaks with the sterile dichotomy between Federalists and Sovereigntists which has marked Quebec for nearly 50 years, which is a welcome development for many. This is reflected in the fact that CAQ voters are as divided on independence as Quebecers are in general. While 35% of CAQ supporters would vote for independence and 51% against, 32% of Quebecers in general support independence, while 56% are against. However, this doesn't mean that the national question is buried. In fact, Legault is a staunch nationalist, and his manipulation of nationalist sentiments among the francophone population is precisely the reason for his rise to power. He has temporarily succeeded in recreating a right-wing identity-based nationalism similar to what existed under despot Maurice Duplessis during the Great Darkness. More importantly, over the 15 years since its creation, Quebec Solidaire has plotted a steady trajectory rightwards, moderating its criticism of the capitalist parties. This was clearly seen during the pandemic, where, as we already mentioned above, the party simply joined hands in an unholy national unity with the three main capitalist parties and muted almost all critique of the government's management of the pandemic. This has also been complemented by a drift in a more nationalist direction, which led the party to be unable to fully oppose such reactionary laws as the CAQ's Islamophobic Law 21. The unions have so far also failed to mount a serious opposition to the Legault government. All of these factors combine to explain the contradictory situation in Quebec. However, it would be incorrect to think that Legault's seemingly impenetrable levels of support can last forever. 
Quebec has historically swung from moments of national unity to vociferous class struggle in the blink of an eye. The Quebec bourgeois have a vested interest in placing a veil of nationalist fog over the eyes of the workers and youth so they forget that their main enemy is at home. But this has its limits. The provincial debt has expanded beyond all control, and Legault, sooner or later, will attempt to pass the bill on to the workers. Any little crack in the situation can reignite the flames of class struggle in Quebec. Again and again and again, the crisis of society comes up against the capitalist system of production for profit. Under capitalism, everything must produce a profit. But the profit motive forms an absolute barrier to resolving the pandemic and resolving the economic needs of society. The profit motive delayed the necessary lockdowns to manage the pandemic. The profit motive stopped the necessary investment in staffing and PPE in long-term care. The profit motive kept non-essential businesses unsafely open as closure means bankruptcy. The profit motive enforces intellectual property and production bottlenecks in vaccine production. In the final analysis, the short-term profit motive damages long-term profits by prolonging the pandemic. A society that produces for need would not face any of these problems. Bars and restaurants facing necessary shutdown orders wouldn't need to generate profit and could simply reopen when safe. Workers in these sectors would have their wages guaranteed and could be retrained as contact tracers during the crisis. Workers' control of genuinely essential production would assure that all the necessary safety measures are followed, instead of shortcuts in the interest of profit. One year into the pandemic, there are routine violations of basic health and safety regulations causing mass outbreaks and death. But apart from the pandemic, the profit motive is also an absolute barrier to the development of the means of production. Capitalism is based upon a fundamental contradiction in that it develops the means of production as if there were no limits, while also imposing limits by pushing down the power of the workers to consume. Capital must always accumulate, and therefore must always yield profits. But it cannot yield profits if the workers cannot buy back the products they have just created. Capitalism creates a crisis of overproduction at the same time as it creates unemployment and poverty. There is too much wealth for the continued production of profit, but not enough wealth for the meeting of human needs. The stagnant productive forces of society can only be unleashed by freeing them from the fetters of the profit motive. This reality also explains the total bankruptcy of the reformists who are not willing to break from capitalism. In a social, economic, and health crisis of this depth, 
the only alternative to nationalization, workers' control, and socialist production for need is corporate welfare. If the capitalist system cannot produce profits itself, then it must turn to the state to gift them to it. The fact that this violates all the laws of capitalism is neither here nor there. All that matters is that the bosses continue making profits, even if they have abandoned productive investment. Eventually, the contradiction between a failing profit motive propped up by corporate welfare and the needs of the people will explode. Why should these corporations be bailed out while they lay off workers? Why should they give executive bonuses and share dividends while they refuse to invest? Why is the value of corporate bailouts greater than the market price to nationalize essential production? The contradictions in the means of production by necessity bring forth the consciousness of the socialist solutions. The failure of the profit motive brings forth the idea of production for need. Eventually, the call for nationalization, workers' control, and a democratic socialist plan of production will be seen as the only solution. The reformist leaders, who have no solutions beyond corporate welfare, will be pushed aside in favor of those calling for nationalization. But it is the task of the revolutionary wing of the movement to make conscious the unconscious strivings of the workers. That is the task for the coming period. The situation is truly without precedent. Never in the history of the capitalist system has there been such a huge crisis on every level combined with a near-complete absence of the leadership of the working class. If revolutionary socialists led the mass organizations of the working class, Canada would currently be in a pre-revolutionary situation. The scandal of trillions of dollars of hoarded dead money, massive bailouts for the rich, executive bonuses and dividend payments, while there are layoffs and workers dying due to profiteering, is enough in itself to cause a pitchfork rebellion. But it needs organization to educate the workers of these facts and provide a structure where the class anger can be expressed. Not only is there a lack of leadership helping to make conscious the partially formed desires of the workers, the leadership that does exist is doing everything in its power to hold the workers back. They call off every struggle before it has begun and tell the workers that they are weak and not strong. The workers' leaders are the main proponents of corporate welfare instead of nationalization, workers' control, and socialism. Therefore, the process of radicalization will be prolonged and arduous, and the barriers to struggle will be high. Leadership and organization really matter. There is a huge contradiction between the objective crisis and the necessary tasks needed to escape the catastrophe and the subjective strength of the revolutionary leadership of the workers and the oppressed. 
The crisis of capitalism will force the workers into struggle, but bad leadership will mean that most of these struggles will go down in defeat. However, the continuation of the crisis will not allow the capitalists to stabilize the system and the cycle will repeat with new outbursts of struggle. Some academics tell us that the working class no longer exists. These are the people comfortably working from home during the pandemic, while essential workers, many of whom are people of color, deliver items to their door. The irony is sickening. The reality is that the working class has never been so strong. The strength of the working class is another element limiting the power of the ruling class to instill a reactionary social equilibrium. The old class base of rural reaction has been significantly diminished. But many of those who have accepted the ideology of erasure of the workers are the workers' leaders themselves. The workers are materially strong while being ideologically weak. This contradiction between objective and subjective factors, between tasks and ideology, between potential strength and lack of organization, will not last forever. An idea becomes a material force when it grips the consciousness of the masses. Increasingly, by a series of progressive approximations, this contradiction shall be resolved. Old leaders, unwilling to fight, will be replaced with new representatives more reflective of the wishes of the mass. In turn, these individuals will be surpassed by the radicalizing movement and replaced. Old left-wingers used to preaching in the wilderness will suddenly be surprised that thousands want to hear their ideas. Even some former right-wingers may be shocked at the popularity of more militant politics and will be pushed further to the left. This is the story of Tony Benn the leader of the British left in the 1970s and 80s. The above process will be significantly facilitated by the action of Marxists. An individual Marxist in a workplace whose ideas were ignored in the past will find all their co-workers coming to them for answers. The task is to train worker revolutionaries in the years before such events so they have the ability to answer those questions. Revolutionaries need to skillfully learn the lessons of past struggles in order to gain the ear of the mass and earn the right to lead. Using united front tactics to further the struggle, the Marxists will fight hand-in-hand -hand with militant workers and learn from them. Transitional demands will be a necessary bridge between the present consciousness and the present preoccupations of the working class and the necessity for socialist revolution and Marxist organization. Each individual injustice is a concrete manifestation of the generalized crisis of capitalism as a whole. Revolutionaries need to learn how to connect with the concrete issue that brings people into struggle and politicizes them, and then walk them across the bridge to understand the general processes. 
these skills do not come automatically and are inseparable with the common endeavor of building a revolutionary organization. Until we can build a revolutionary organization that is seen by the working class, the disequilibrium in society will continue. The circular process of revolt, defeat, and new revolt will continue. The capitalist system will continue destroying the lives of working-class people, promoting racism, gender oppression, war, environmental destruction, and every other evil imaginable. We cannot allow this to continue. We must build an organization that can help the workers overthrow this rotten system. In Canada and internationally, the international Marxist tendency has been advancing with great leaps forward. More and more workers and youth are coming to understand that isolated struggles are no longer sufficient and are seeing the need to unite in a common revolutionary organization armed with the ideas of Marxism. Sooner than we think, Marxists can begin to become a factor in the equation of the class struggle. But only if we work now to train the revolutionaries that can connect the finished program of Marxism with the unfinished and unconscious strivings of the masses. Our task is to overthrow capitalism and to build a movement that will change the course of human history. Thank you for listening to Fightback Radio. Fightback is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.